On this episode of The Growth Show, we talked to James Freeman, founder and CEO of Blue Bottle Coffee. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm not interested in typical, you know, so that, that never really bothered me. Um, we are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Growth Show. I'm very excited. We have James Freeman, the founder and CEO of Blue Bottle Coffee, on with us. James, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So for the, for the folks who maybe haven't heard, tell us, what is Blue Bottle Coffee? Blue Bottle Coffee is a roastery and it's a cafe and um, we're in San Francisco, Oakland, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Tokyo, and Los Angeles. Wow. And I will tell folks that uh, every time I'm in, especially San Francisco, uh, which is the, my, was my first Blue Bottle Coffee experience, it is absolutely the best coffee that I've had. Uh, and I do, I go every single trip um, and I'll need to, to make sure next time I'm in Tokyo, I didn't realize you guys were there yet. That's awesome. So you, you've basically gone global pretty fast. Yeah, if Tokyo is global, then we've gone global. <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. Uh, all right. So tell us a little bit more about sort of what was the genesis behind starting this? Certainly, there's lots of places where people can get coffee. There's lots of, you know, different types of coffee shops. There's huge chains. There's a lot of, you know, smaller folks. Like you, I mean, this is not uh, something where you guys were the first one to, you know, start roasting and having, you know, coffee shops. Tell us a little bit more about the genesis behind this. Yeah, I mean, I was doing something very different, and I was kind of unhappy, and I just, I was roasting, this is in the late 90s in San Francisco, I was roasting coffee as a hobby on a perforated baking sheet in my kitchen, and I was really fascinated by how, how um, just the coffee would change, the flavors would coalesce, they it would get more and more interesting as the days progressed, and then there would be a peak, and then there would be a tapering off, and this was really fascinating to me, this is in the days before the internet was systematically taking the joy out of these personal discoveries. So I, it felt, you know, very, very uh, like a secret that I had uncovered. And at that time in San Francisco, literally there was nowhere you could go to buy coffee that you knew what day it was roasted on. I thought that was inexplicable and wrong. So I, I just, you know, I, desperation is a good motivator. Um, so I, I kind of tapered off what I was doing and, and I, I, don't have a background in business, um, but I was a farmer's market shopper. I could imagine that model of commerce. You know, you make a thing and you show up on Saturday and people bring cash and they buy this thing that you made and, and you give it to them and, and then you repeat that cycle. So I could imagine that happening and, and so that's, that's what I did. I signed a little lease on a 186 square foot space in Oakland and started roasting and I bought an espresso cart soon after that. Wow. Wow. So tell us a little bit more about the sort of what was the job? You mentioned you were sort of working some job that you didn't love. You were a little frustrated with. What was that? Oh, I was a clarinet player. I was a classical musician. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Big, uh, big jump there. And where did your love of coffee start? Obviously, something you're very passionate about. So passionate that you started roasting your own in your own oven. I, I know very few people that do that. Uh, in fact, I only met one other person who actually roasts their own beans, and he's a little he's a little quirky. Um, so, like, where did this love? But he also has a profound passion for coffee. Where did that come from? When did you start drinking coffee? Like, how, where did this all emerge from? Well, I, I mean, I, you know, that's a deeper question than you might think. Um, but 
I think I, my parents always had like horrible coffee, like Uban and 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 stuff in a can, and and I would open, I would like beg. It seemed like very grown up, you know. So so when I was three or four years old, I would beg to use the can opener to um, open that the can of coffee mm. because that smell, you know, that was the only good thing in that can was that one first hit of aroma. <laughs> And, um, and then I, you know, then there was this prolonged several years of begging, um, to taste the coffee because of course, if it smelled like that, it has to taste amazing. Right. Um, so, and, and it didn't, you know, it was horrible. It, it, it and that stuck with me for a very long time, that fascination between something that smelled so good and tasted so terribly. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it was just one of those things. I think that tension between the taste and the smell lodged something deeper than if it would have tasted incredible. Tell me a little bit more about the first, you know, how did you get the money together to open the facility in Oakland? Uh, you know, and it seems like you started, you had a, an espresso cart. That was one of the first ways you were selling. Tell us a little bit more about the, the very, very early days. How did you go? Did you sell any coffee that you had roasted in your oven and, you know, in your, at your home? Or, no, no, that's yeah. that's not really allowed. You have to have like a <laughs> certified facility and and all of that stuff. So you know that was the hobby stage, and then I signed the lease and bought this roaster, and I had, you know, I had two credit cards and twenty or thirty thousand dollars, and I was a clarinetist, so that was like seemed like so much money that of course I thought I could start a business on that. Um, so that's what I did. I didn't know that that wasn't enough money. I didn't know that you should have this thing called a business plan. I didn't know that, you know, there's all these hurdles that I, since I didn't realize that they were there, I, I didn't have to go over them, you know? So it's a little bit ignorance is bliss. And um, it helps that just as a household person, you know, you have your bills that come in and at the end of the month, you have to have enough money left over to pay your bills. And that's actually really good training it surprised me later in life thinking or learning that other businesses don't really have that same discipline sometimes <laughs> you got to make it before you can spend it I, yes i think well especially when you're looking to have a much more ownership in a business and bootstrap it more i think that's really really good advice i think you're right i think a lot of people get ahead of themselves uh yeah. with a lot of outside investment uh but let's fast forward a little bit because you know since then obviously you've grown a ton had a lot of success, which I, I want to talk more about that. But since we're on the point about investment, I you know I think you've raised nearly like fifty million dollars from a bunch of investors, uh, some of Silicon Valley's top folks. Where'd that come from? I mean, that seems like such a difference from when you first got started. Yeah, well, it's a difference in scale, but not ambition really. I, I've always wanted to open shops and 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 to make the best possible coffee I could and provide the best possible experiences that surround this coffee that I could. Um, and then, you know, I, I met our executive chairman, Brian Meehan, my business partner, and it, this was in early 2012, so I was getting a lot of emails from random people, I wanna help you grow, you know, and, and those were easy enough to sift through, but his was sort of more interesting and charming and, and he was a customer and he had this understanding of retail. So um, Brian led the first investment round, um, you know, after many months of us talking and realizing that we kind of thought Blue Bottle was an interesting place and, and it could be more places and we could get better and better at what we did as we grew. So that's what I'm interested in. 
and I feel like it's a little bit maybe non-typical for you know a non-software company, a non you know hardware technology company to raise that amount of capital from those types of investors. I mean, is that not the right way to think about it, or is this sort of a you know do you, what what kind of return are those investors looking for over sort of what time frame, and and have they adjusted their expectations because this is a different type of a business where maybe it's either more long-term or something like that? Or, or do you feel like you have a, a similar trajectory to, you know, a more stereotypical kind of technology investment? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, there, I'm not interested in typical, you know, so that, that never really bothered me because um, it doesn't really occur to me to ask what typical is. I'm just interested in what I'm interested in. Um, but these, you know, very, this glossy roster of, internet celebrities are know that it's not an app it's a coffee house and it's cafe they don't want to be the ones that ruin blue bottle their investment does not come with um any sort of control or or you know end date where we have to do this or we don't have to open 42.7 cafes per year you know there's they want us to grow they think we will grow and they're um content to trust us to grow in the most sustainable and the highest quality way that we can now, I think your mission is to be, you know, to have the best coffee, but not to be the biggest necessarily, right? So how, how do you how do you reckon how do you reconcile that? I mean, I think from an from an investor's perspective, you know, they're always they're looking for growth and return, right? And so if having the best makes you the biggest, I think that then they're interested in that, but it but is there any sort of like any any tension there at all? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, there could be uh, I think about scaling excellence and one does that by being able to scale ambitions as well as scale the size of the company. So we're getting a better and better team put together. We're go flying you know, four times more miles this year than last year looking for great coffee. We're buying bigger lots from our greatest producers. You know, it's, it's all about scaling excellence and um, and that's exciting. That's fun. You know, just growing, like squeezing out coffee and watching it get worse and worse is, is not a good way to live. So that's not what any of us are interested in. Do you feel like a lot of companies uh, sacrifice quality in favor of growth? Oh, I don't know. I don't think about a lot of, like other coffee companies that much. I mean, com- even companies in general, like out of, you know, we, here we have, you know, a bunch of execs that listen to the show. I mean, would your advice to them be, you know, grow but without sacrificing quality at all and if you need to sacrifice growth do it in favor of quality that's i mean that sounds like what your strategy is well yeah no i mean we're we i want to think about our product and our product comes first our product will always come first you know and this product is coffee but it's also this experience the semiosphere that surrounds this coffee so um but there's but there's no fun in doing that in a, in a vacuum. There's no fun in doing that in some little corner that a very few number of people are exposed to it. Like the fun is, is bringing this thing that I believe in, that my team believes in, to more and more people. That that's where it gets exciting. That we can be influential. We can can change people's lives. I you know I know people that that went to our kiosk in San Francisco that met in line and they got married and now they have kids. You know so like when you're coffee people come to see you every single day and and you can really be influential in their lives and and i want to have that impact in more and more places with more and more people i'm I'm glad you brought up that experience part of this tell me more about that experience 
what are the things you did to set it up in the early days? How did you think about it? Tell us more about that. I, I got kind of lucky. You know, I didn't have enough money to open a cafe after the farmer's markets. This was 2005. So this friend of mine had a building in Hayes Valley on a dead-end alleyway that smelled like pee. And he was like, hey, maybe we could do something in my garage. And I knew that that's how much money I had. And, and, and it was a weird place to open. You know, now it's very busy and it's been around for 10 years. Uh, it was a weird place to open. But what that did, because our, our menu was also kind of weird. We didn't have sizes. We didn't have flavors. You know, we had one size of every drink. And it was because we thought that was the best size. We didn't have hazelnut syrup. We didn't do extra hot. You know, we were interested in this very pure expression. If we would have asked on our market research, you know, what would the questions have been? Like, oh, do you want to pay a little bit more than you usually do? Do you want to have, do you have to wait a tiny bit longer? Do you want to go out of your, you know, like it would have been no, 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 no. But, but we did it this way. And, and because the context was so different also that I think that left people more, um, more receptive to what we were doing because we stripped away like the usual tropes that were in coffee houses at the time and it left them more receptive to our product. So I, I think that was really good luck and not having very much money <laughs> at the time. So I, I think that really helped set us, I set our context um, as being different and let people experience us the way I wanted them to experience us in a very, at that time, a very pure way. Um, just like walk up to this garage door, have a nice exchange with the barista and get something that's truly deeply very delicious, very meaningful. And then as we've expanded, you know, I, I've thought a lot about just like, what is, what does that feel to open the doorknob to go into this place? Is it wood? Is it made out of leather? Is it metal? If it's metal, will it be cold when you touch it and it's a cold day? You know, it's like there's a lot of a million little associations that people have when they walk in. And I, I see my job is stripping away all the potentially unpleasant and distracting associations and, and letting them concentrate on this experience they're having between a really great skilled coffee professional and something really, really delicious. So what's on the menu? I walk into a Starbucks and the menu is bigger than a, you know, a, a pizza place or a sub shop, right? I mean, there's so many things that they offer. Like, what, what is on your menu? We basically have six drinks, no sizes, espresso, macchiato, cappuccino, cafe latte, cafe latte, cafe mocha, hot chocolate for the kids. Um, we work with this farmer, this apple farmer in Sebastopol. We have nice apple juice. You know, and then, then we have pour over coffee and sometimes there's, there's a blend and, or a single origin. So it's, it's all very simple. And have you thought about expanding that menu or is that, is that part of the experience that you really want to focus on the things that you feel like you do excellently? No, I mean, expand it to what, you know, it's <laughs> like if the cappuccino is a perfect proportion and that tastes really delicious, why would we want a larger version of that that's less perfect, you know? So what do you think of the people that walk into Dunkin' Donuts and order a you know, extra large, uh, iced, uh, hazelnut with, you know, extra cream, extra sugar. Yeah. I, you know, if that makes them happy, then like, I want people to be happy. You know, I, I think people are pleasantly surprised when they have something that's more pure and truly delicious. You know, you know, imagine like the first time you went to Italy and had a margarita pizza and what, what is on a margarita pizza? It's, it's, sauce and a little buffalo milk mozzarella maybe a little shaved garlic 
garlic. You know, it's so pure, but it's like you have you have that, and that's all you need. So you know, there's ways of trying to make yourself happy with more things, but I, I think it's harder, but also somehow more deeply satisfying to make somebody happy with fewer things because they have to be um, better executed and better thought out. Do all the employees that you hire, do they, do you screen them for sort of their passion about coffee? Like how, how, how pervasive is that sort of focus, that deep focus that it feels like you have on, on quality and this deep passion for coffee? How pervasive is that? I mean, obviously the baristas probably are, but there's other people that work at the company, you know, in finance and things like that. Like how, how unifying and how important is that as a part of your culture? It's really important. You have to love this thing, you know, and it, it's not like if you, if you order a mocha, you'll be fired. You know, you know, we're not snobs about it, but people have to be very passionate. But coffee's teachable. Um, when we're even looking for baristas or, or cafe managers, we're looking for great people that um, want to make other people happy, that are thinking about hospitality, that are thinking about making, building a great team, that are super excited about coffee that aren't necessarily experts because we've got a training department. We can make people experts. The nice thing about coffee is it's not like learning how to play a Mozart concerto. You can be great in six months if you work hard. And, um, you know, and, and so it's, it's a little bit shorter learning curve than, than many people think. You, know, you don't know all there is to know after six months, but you can get a really good thorough grounding in coffee in six months, and then you spend the whole rest of your life trying to get better and better at it. Uh, early in this interview, you said something about the, the internet ruins all discovery, or you said it much more eloquently than that. Uh, talk to us about that. What did you mean by that? Oh, I was just being a little bit snippy. Um, but you, you know how it is. Like nowadays, if, if you like, there's you just like search on Google, and and anything you think of as an original thought has been you know already thought about better by like somebody who's twelve years old in Nigeria. You know, it's 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 this pervasive connectedness is nice i mean you and i are talking on skype and i don't know where you are <laughs> um, and yet you sound like you're coming from the next office um you know so th there's some nice things about it but i think there's a lot of of personal discoveries there's there's a lot of of just sort of the the quieter parts of people's lives are easy it's easy to be overshadowed by things on the internet. Does it exist if I don't post it on Instagram? You know, can I, can, can you have, I, I believe sometimes, sometimes you can have an experience or you can document an experience, but you can't do both. You have to choose. And more people are choosing to document these days. Okay. Walk us through making the perfect cup of coffee. I know you said take six months to really learn coffee. Well, what can, uh, what can someone learn in a minute or two? Like what's, what are the oh, things that they should focus on? I, I mean, it's, uh, step one is obviously buying, you know, either going to one of your shops or going online and buying your, your coffee from you guys. But what's, once they get that, what's step two, three, four? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's actually really easy to really up your enjoyment of coffee. Unfortunately, you have to buy a grinder. You have to buy a good grinder, not just any grinder. But what's a good a grinder? Good, what was that? I'm what, sorry? What's a good grinder? What defines a good grinder? Uh, something that has burrs, they're called, instead of blades. Burrs are, are like two discs with teeth on them that um, rotate against each other. Um, and that you can adjust the space in between those burrs rather than a blade that basically chops the beans into somewhat random pieces. 
So you, the grind is uh, the, the single most decisive factor in how your coffee might taste. And so after you do that, then, then that, the rest is pretty easy. We have brewing guides on our website, bluebottlecoffee.com. Um, and so you can check out the brewing guides, but it, it's really easy. Then sort of after you've got your, your beans selected, then you've ground them well and appropriately. Then it's all about a brewing ratio, right? So for every gram of coffee, of ground coffee, you have, you're going to use a certain amount of grams of water. And is that 12 to 1, 10 to 1, 15 to 1? But it's nice if you can measure it. The nice thing about using metric on a, a scale is then one gram of water is one milliliter. So it's both um, volumetric and by weight. But anyway, so you have a brewing ratio. You have water temperature. You pour the water on the ground slowly through a filter, in a French press, whatever you want. And then, then you're done. That's it. So you're not a stickler for pour over. You, you feel like French press is cool. No, I, I think people should enjoy the coffee in whatever means they do. I personally like a pour over and because it's clearer and more interesting, in my opinion, to be drunk black. But a lot of people enjoy French press at home. I, I think if you're going to make it, make it with a simple machine. Anything with a plug usually is not going to give you as an enjoyable um, a result. So stay away from the Mr. Coffees, the grind and brews all that kind of stuff, um, use something simple and you'll, you'll enjoy, tend to enjoy it more if you can get the grind right, pay attention to the brewing ratio, the water temperature. Got it. Awesome advice. Um, I think the one other thing I wanted to ask about a little bit was tell me about the brand. So I always, a blue bottle and you have this, it's, I think it's just a really cool looking design and cool looking logo. Like where did that whole, where did the name come from? Where did the brand come from? Hmm. Uh, well, the name came from, it's a little bit of the creation myth of European coffee in the 1680s. The Turks kind of swept across Central Europe and there was this decisive battle in Vienna and the Turks had coffee, the Europeans didn't. The Turks left, left their coffee. And Central Europe's first coffee house called the Blau Flaschen um, started as a result of that. There's also, sorry to be such a shill, there's also a little story about that on our website. Um, so that, that was just, you know, a, a name that I couldn't think of anything better. And then a friend of mine who's a mu musician had a wife who's a, a graphic designer, and I traded her a pound of coffee a week for a year to come up with a logo for us. And she came up with, and that was a really good deal. <laughs> and so she came up with this cute little bottle with the letters superimposed on, over it. Um, and then a year or so later, I had the idea of just like extracting the bottle on its own as a, as a little glyph. And, um, and it actually, it was, it's been really great because I, I think about it in retrospect, it's good to be lucky and then think about why rather than try to be lucky. Um, but I think about it in retrospect and, and our company's name is the same as the logo. And there's not very many companies like that. You know, our company is called Blue Bottle and the logo is a blue bottle. Like Apple is called Apple and their logo is an apple. You know, there's, but there's, there's very few that you can think of. And, and I think it was um, just sort of fortuitous that I, I uh, that, that, that happened to us. It is funny. There's, uh, there's one of your stores in San Francisco that I always forget the exact sort of like street that it's off of. And, uh, but I look for the symbol. 
because I know right. to look yeah. for the symbol, not to look for a sign that has the name on it. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Awesome. Uh, James Freeman, founder and CEO of Blue Bottle Coffee. Thanks a ton for joining us. A fascinating story and, and best of luck to you in growing the business and uh, to everyone out there who hasn't tried it yet. Definitely try Blue Bottle Coffee, bluebottlecoffee.com. It's good stuff. I'm a fan. James, thanks, thanks for coming. Much, yeah, nice chatting. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Growth Show, uh, produced by Dave Gerhardt. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Volpe, the CMO at HubSpot. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to get reviews in iTunes and Stitcher and all those t wonderful places. Uh, and if you head over to our website, thegrowthshow.com, uh, we have a new email list you can join to get notified about new episodes and not miss any updates about what's going on with the show, uh, as well as get sneak peeks about upcoming guests and things like that. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, and we hope you'll listen again soon. Uh, bike check. Am I good? They're two, they're four, they're six, they're eight. Shunting trucks and hauling freight. Red and green and brown and blue. They're the really useful crew. We good? Okay. Thomas the Train, you don't know that one yet. Oh, you know? How do you know Thomas the Train? You watch it? <laughs> when you were a kid, you watched it? It was... Okay. See, now I feel old because it was, Thomas did not exist when I was a kid. I can't actually understand you. That was all you wanted, right?